Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gelev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Massimo, as you know, but our listeners don't, our producer, <laughs> Benny Pollock, recently started uh, reading, doing a little reading and research into the topic of nihilism, or as some people pronounce it, nihilism, uh-huh. um, and asked if we'd do an episode on it. And we said, eh, sure, whatever, nothing matters anyway, so why not? Exactly. <laughs> so here we are. Doing a podcast on the philosophy of nihilism, its ins and outs, and how to tell if you might really be a nihilist deep mm. down. Okay. So, Massimo, uh, do you want to kick, I mean, if, if you think this works, kick things off with just a rundown of the different kinds of nihilism? Because I suspect people don't realize how many different types there are. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a fair number. So, so first of all, of course, the, generally speaking, the word nihilism or nihilism comes from, from a Latin, which means, you know, nothing. Um, so it is about a, neg- it's a general attitude of negating something. And that's something, depending on what you're negating, you're a different type of sort of nihilist, right? Right. So you could be, at, at the very minimum, uh, you could be, for instance, a um, metaphysical or ontological nihilist. That's somebody who denies reality, essentially, which sounds weird, but we can get into it uh, in a minute. Um, or you can be, of course, the most common variety of nihilist is, is an ethical nihilist, somebody who says that there is no meaning, no, no, no such thing as uh, ethical values or moral, moral values as an independent, you know, sort of objective uh, thing. Uh, you can deny uh, meaning in life in general. Um, and... Um, and then you can be an epistemological nihilist. An epistemological nihilist is somebody who denies the possibility of knowledge. So it's a radical skeptic, basically, about things. So th- those are just some of the... Um, you can also be a political nihilist, I suppose, that is somebody who, claim, who claims that there is no need for any uh, social structure, like government, family, or anything like that. Although I, once you get to that point, I think that that's beginning to stretch to the, the meaning of the word. The, the fundamental types... Are sort of the ontological or metaphysical nihilist, the the um, meaning slash uh, uh, sort of uh, ethical mean, uh, sense, and then the epistemological one. Yeah, and I'd kind of like to inject my own uh, dimension in this taxonomy, which is an abstract or a visceral nihilist. Okay, a, you could call it an abstract, like an intellectual or emotional nihilist, because I think that nihilism is usually characterized by or at least accompanied by this sort of emotional sense that nothing matters or that nothing is right. real or that you know no knowledge is possible right. um and i think it's perfectly possible to sort of acknowledge abstractly that there's no moral truths or that life technically has no meaning um and yet to not feel the emotional weight of that conclusion or or at least not to react to it emotionally in the way that other more visceral nihilists do yeah, I think you're right. Uh, so, for instance, there is a um, uh, there are several philosophies, of course, philosophical positions that that take into consideration nihilism, 
in the sense you're just talking about, and then sort of say, okay, now what? No, you know, what are we going to do about it? And the, probably the most obvious uh, example is, is existentialism. The existentialist, you know, the mid mid um, uh, 20th century French existentialists like uh, Sartre and De Beauvoir and, and Camus, they were all nihilists in the sense that they denied that life has an external meaning of any sort. It's, it's, there's no objective value. Uh, to human affairs and, and human emotions and all that sort of stuff. But to the existentialist, that was not a sort of a cancel for despair. It was a, uh, empowering. It was like, okay, so that means I, I can make it up as I go. I can, I can take ownership of my values, my reactions to things, and my decisions in life. And they, they, these are, and they become meaningful because I give it meaning as opposed because they have meaning from, from the outside, right? Yeah, it's so interesting to me how differently people react to nihilism. So, for example, there's a scene you may remember in the movie Annie Hall Mm -hmm. in which Woody Allen's character, who is at that point in the movie a young boy, has just found out that the universe is expanding (laughs) and that eventually all matter in the universe and all life will be pulled apart. And so he's in, I think, the psychiatrist's office with his mother, who is beside herself because he's, like, fallen into a Great Depression. And she's shrieking, he won't do his homework. (laughs) And little Woody glumly replies, well, what's the point? Right. And And if I I remember correctly, his his mother objects that the universe is not expanding. We live in Brooklyn or something like that. Something on those lines. (laughs) Yeah, she definitely has a more local (laughs) philosophy. Yeah. But, you know, on a more serious note, I, I have good friends who have gone through a similar kind of realization when they were kids or when they were teenagers that, you know, ultimately everything is going to end or everyone's going to die or, you know, there's no objective meaning in the universe. And it really has shaken them to their core. Um, They've, you know, spent a while being depressed or, I don't know, going off the rails in some way. And I I was so taken aback when I learned that fact about the universe because I, when I... You mean that I remember encountering, you know existentialist philosophers or, or nihilism when I was maybe a teenager mm-hmm. and just my reaction was like well yeah of course I mean <laughs> like this this is completely consistent with how I was viewing the universe already and it never seemed depressing to me at all right. so I, I don't fully understand the difference between how different people react to that kind of philosophy well I, I can I can sympathize because I mean I'm not I don't think of myself as a nihilist but also I also however don't think that there is such a thing as an externally imposed objective meaning to either moral values or or life, um, and and I, and yet I never felt that kind of pressure that you're talking about. But the, but at the same time, you know, we need to realize that that is a major force behind the popularity of religions. I mean, that's the you know the, oh, the, as an alternative to the you, kind of depression right. that exactly. or, or helplessness exactly. that you would feel if you acknowledged or embraced nihilism. Exactly. I mean, the, the major critics of nihilistic positions are, in fact, then tend to be religious theologians, you know, religious philosophers and things like that. Because, of course, from their perspective, uh, meaning in life uh, is objective and external and, and comes from some kind of divinity. Um, right. Now, we could have a separate conversation by, about why would it be better to have meaning to your life being imposed without negotiation from the outside as opposed to making it on your own. But, you know, that's a whole different, you know, uh, uh, approach to things. I mean, I, I honestly yeah. never understood why the religious answer, uh, it actually, actually, it's actually satisfying to people because it seems like uh, in some sense uh, it's an, it's an um, I don't want to be too harsh about it, but it's, it's sort of a, uh, almost a childish reaction. It's like, okay, I don't know what to do here, so you tell me. Somebody tell me what to do. Well, well no, you take, take ownership. You know, make make it make it your own thing. I mean, that's a, in that sense, I admire much much more the the existentialists 
even though I'm not an existentialist myself, uh, then somebody says, oh yeah, I want, I want this super powerful being to tell me what to do and, and how to behave. Yeah, you know, I think I mentioned oh, years ago now, this is one of the earlier Rationally Speaking podcasts, um, I was talking about like philosophical insights that I'd gleaned from fiction. Yeah. And one of my examples was from Frankenstein's monster. Um, when he, he basically, he's trying to figure out how he came into existence and he discovers uh, Frankenstein's, that's the doctor, not the monster, right, Frankenstein's right. <laughs> journal documenting the, this process of experimentation that ultimately led to the creation of the monster. Um, and so now the monster has his answer to, you know, the, the big question of why, why am I here? Right. Um, for what purpose was I brought into existence? And it's, you know, not only unsatisfying, but just depressing and degrading. Right. Exactly. And you're somebody you know, else's toy, basically. For, for yeah. Just someone else's sort of idle experiment. Yeah. Um, and I think you can even, you know, flip it around and imagine that there, you know, you were created randomly. There was no purpose from any conscious entity. And that's also depressing. So I think if both, uh, both, you know, the hypothetical existence of a purpose and the non-existence of a purpose both leave you feeling, you know, nihilistic, then there's probably, the key is probably more to do with how you're seeing things than, you know, what the objective answer is. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Now, that, of course, immediately brings up to mind the, the quintessential nihilistic philosopher, which is Nietzsche. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that Nietzsche thought that uh, the nihilism is a thing to be embraced, but in a very particular sense. He figured that um, you know, nihilism represents a crisis for modernity. That is, that, that we, we're beginning to live in a post-Christian, post-religious society, you know, if he's famous, God is dead kind of thing, um, uh, because human beings are realizing, uh, essentially beginning to accept uh, what science tells us about uh, the nature of the universe, right? And, and, and what science tells us is that, um, you know, we are the product of, of biological evolution. We live on, on a planet that is one among many in a galaxy that is one among many and so on and so forth. So it, it, it decentralized, science has decentralized our, our sense of, of, you know, belonging to the universe. It, it has told, that, uh, told us that we are the result of a sort of a series of accidents and during, during evolution and so on and so forth. So according to Nietzsche, that causes the nihilistic crisis in which he saw modern society uh, sort of battling uh, with. And, and, but he saw that as a... As a um, um, a source of hope, because the idea is that instead of falling into depression, what people might finally do at this point is to to let let go of the crutches of religion, essentially, and then sort of embrace, you know, understand and internalize uh, their actual condition in the universe, their actual place in the universe, and then react positively. So take take charge, and which of course brought him to to this famous idea of the Superman, uh, the 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 person that. Uh, takes control of his life, that makes his values and in his meaning as he goes, um, and so that's that's a that's a major turning point in sort of Western philosophy, essentially, and it, it all hinges on the idea of nihilism and how religion deals with it or fails to deal with it. Just as an aside, Massimo, I love that while you're detailing this crisis for humanity, there was a siren going off. Right? In the yes, it's sort of uh, I, oh, New York we did is that. our soundtrack. Yeah, that was on purpose, right? <laughs> Sort of highlight yeah, it. That's yeah. where most of our operating cost goes to, is paying the ambulances to drive past your apartment at appropriate times. Absolutely. <laughs> um, now, Maspo, yeah. let's, can we just back up? I'm sure. really curious, given that 
as you've said and as you've written, you don't believe there's an objective meaning or purpose to life. Um, why don't you consider yourself a nihilist, at least in the abstract sense that I was talking about earlier? Well, that's the that's the thing. So nihilism has uh, um, has meaning, many different meanings, and so at a min- at a minimalist reading, I think that anybody who accepts a naturalistic view of the universe is a nihilist, meaning that we all accept. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a naturalist, you accept that um, um, the meaning of human life is is in fact constructed by human beings. You accept that there is no preordained plan for anybody to do anything. Uh, you accept a number of other, you know, sort of consequences of a modern scientific view of the world, just like Nietzsche did. Um, but the problem is that um, I don't see just of, of very often. To me, <clears throat> the reason I, f- I find the nihilism sort of as a philosophy unattractive is because it seems to me to indulge too often in sort of dichotomous thinking. That is, oh. There is no externally imposed meaning or, or objectively constructed values. Therefore, there is no meaning or values. Well, no. Hold on. Because that actually leaves uh, quite a bit of room for alternative views of meaning and value. I mean, I, I do believe that there is such a thing as ethics, and I do believe that there is such a thing as meaning in life. It's just that both ethics and meaning in life come have human sources. Uh, that makes them perhaps... Uh, contingent, in fact, no, without perhaps, it certainly makes them contingent. But it doesn't make them arbitrary. I mean, I don't think that any kind of of, of uh, system of meaning for human life works, and I don't think that any kind of system of, of ethics works for human life because human. I mean, beings, it depends what you mean by works, though. Like, uh, sure. If your if your goal is you know human flourishing, just for example, yeah, then yes, I agree. Some systems work much better than others at achieving that goal. Yes, but, if your goal, but you've if, chosen that goal. If your goal is exterminating the human the, the, the life on, on in the universe, then of course you have different kind of meaning, right? But if you are the latter kind of guy, you're a sociopath. I'm being a psychopath, and you ought to just be locked in, in, in somewhere, and the key ought to be thrown away. I mean, the, the point is, uh, yes, <laughs> of course, you have to make the choices, which is that you're talking about. You have to pick a uh, a, a particular sense in which things may have meaning for you and then from that follows a particular type of ethical system but i don't think that that choice is quite as difficult and certainly not quite as arbitrary as sometimes is made up to be Uh, and the reason i think that is because you know human beings are a particular type of social animal with certain innate characteristics and certain desires that are common to pretty much everybody unless you're a psychopath and so on and so forth so it's you know that's why the the word flourishing, for instance, you just used, I think it's appropriate precisely because it's vague. It actually accommodates a number of different ver- variants of the same basic idea. But you know, very few people will think that flourishing means uh, living a life in pain and suffering and, and died young and, and penniless or something like that. It's, it's hard to imagine that somebody would say, oh, yeah, that's my idea of flourishing, and it's just as good as yours. Well, I mean, I can come up with other sort of internally consistent moral systems or goals that would be very different from human flourishing. Like you might, I mean, there's a philosophy called negative utilitarianism, um, which basically takes as as its goal above all else, minimizing suffering. Um, And given that all human life basically involves some suffering or all life, I would say, um, they would advocate for basically ending life as the most moral outcome. You can imagine. Yes, and I think um, those, if, if somebody actually tried to do that, those, they would fall into the, the psychopathic category and uh, we would be justified in actually 
lock him away. I mean, yes, it's internally well, coherent. I also the, would in, fight very hard against someone with those views, but I don't right. think that we should lock them up is really a philosophical argument for why their morality is objectively incorrect. No, no, no. I, I, I don't, I don't I hold not... their philosophy, let me be clear. Correct. I, just, I, I don't see how you can make a principled argument for why they are objectively wrong and we are objectively right. All I see... All that I see that we can say is that we very strongly prefer them not to win. Um, well, it's not that we prefer them not to win. It's that the overwhelming majority of humanity prefers them not to win. Oh, I agree with that, too. Right. Yeah. So, well, but is in that, that a sense, philosophical argument? Well, no, it's an objective fact. <laughs> so, I mean, oh, that, no, that's... But is that objective fact an argument or the core of your argument for why they are objectively wrong? Well, arguments are a combination of, of reasoning and facts. So, yes, it, it, it is part of an argument. Uh, you know, the, 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 the idea is that, um, yes, you can come up with an uh, internally coherent system. In fact, there are many, many internally coherent different systems of ethics or values that you, you might come up right? But I think that those have to be anchored to factual things about human nature because if they're not, then, then they're entirely abstracted and who cares? They, they become sort of the equivalent of a mathematical model that has no uh, reflection in reality. You can do mathematics about it, but you're not doing physics anymore. And I think of ethics as, as sort of apply, an applied discipline. It has to deal with human beings, not with, abs- with abstract uh, notions. Um, so if that is the case... Uh, then you can build in a you can build a, only a smaller number of systems of ethics. I'm not, by the way, at all suggesting that there is only one way of looking uh, at ethics uh, or one way of looking at uh, at human values or human flourishing. Absolutely, there's there's certainly a number of alternatives that are equally reasonable and perhaps equally defensible. Um, but my point is simply that those alternatives are not infinite. Um, they're not all the logically possible alternatives because they're they're tethered to the the actual realities of what it means to be a human being. If we were ants instead of human beings, we wouldn't even be having this discussion, right? So, so the the, the very uh, concept of ethics wouldn't be making any sense for uh, an ant, or for that matter, for a non-social being, uh, because ethics is inherently a social uh, social issue. It's a question that comes up when you deal with with other beings like you. Uh, that you think have moral values. If you don't, if you if you if you live, you know, entirely on on your own little planet and you're not a social species, then what what kind of ethical discussion can you possibly have? Well, oh, I have so many things to say about that. But uh, yes, to, go to ahead. try to say the thing that is closest to the topic of nihilism, um, there is one important sense in which I agree with you on this uh, subtopic, mm-hmm. uh, which is that I find it really frustrating that people will jump from. Uh, there isn't one correct objective morality written into the fabric of the universe to, therefore, I shouldn't care about anything or anyone. That right. doesn't follow at all. And no, I find it, it disturbing that people think it does. Like, you know, we, we were built to care at the very least about our families and our tribes. Yes. And also to a lesser degree about other, you know, conscious beings with the capacity for suffering. That doesn't go away just because you reach a philosophical conclusion. Right, fortunately. <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> right? Yes, fortunately. Right. No, I, I agree with you. That's that's a that's a jump that is certainly not um, um, sort of backed up by any argument. It's I, I think in some sense, it's uh, either a misguided uh, type of reasoning or um, more often than not a self-serving kind of reasoning. It's like, oh, good. Uh, the universe has no meaning. There is no vo- no objective uh, uh, value or morality out there, so I can do whatever the heck I want. 
Well, no. <laughs> Again, because you don't live on your own planet. You, 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 uh, the whole point of ethics is, is to help us regulate um, um, life in interacting in a society while at the same time sort of maximizing whatever version of, you know, whatever, whatever um, concept of flourishing uh, you think it is, it is worth for a human being or for, your, for yourself. For instance, what you, th- th- that brings me actually to a, uh, uh, point out a confusion that is often made when, it, when we talk about nihilism, which is the cons- confusion between nihilism and solipsism. Um, so so- different, the, main, the main difference mm. between the two is that nihilism um, does not deny, uh, I'm sorry, denies the existence of a self, while solipsism does not. In fact, so, so for a solipsist, um, the self is the only thing that exists and matters. Right? If you're a solipsist, you're li- really literally in your own universe. You think you are the only thing in the universe because everything else uh, is, is – there is no, no particular reason to think that anything else exists. Right? So you're, you're, you're the only thing that exists in the universe, but you, you do exist. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, for a, uh, for a nihilist, nothing uh, – for instance, a, a – um, ontological nihilist, nothing actually exists. No object exists. And therefore, uh, in a, so, you know, sort yeah. of a deep ontological sense, and therefore y- yourself doesn't exist either. Now, what you make of that position so from a sort of... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah let's talk about what that means. Yeah, right. <laughs> what their usage of exists means, or, or their usage of, you know, whether or not the world is real, what real means for them. Um, right. Because I, I'm... It seems very likely that they're using that word in a way that I'm not using it. Yeah, so there are different versions of it. Like, like one, one of them is, is known as meriological nihilism. Meriology is the study of, of, of the um, number compositions of things. So the fact, if you think that there is more than one object out there in the universe, that means your meriology of the, or the meriology of your universe is larger than one. You're counting more than one things. Uh, in the universe, right. but if you are a, uh, if you if you think that that there is actually only there are no objects out there, in other words, if you're an ontological nihilist, um, or you think that there is only one thing out there, uh, let's call it the universal wave function or whatever, and everything else is essentially an illusion of human perception, then you're still a ni- an ontological nihilist for all effective purposes, and you're certainly denying the existence of a self. You, you, you're claiming that. Any perception of individuality, any perception of the existence of separate objects in the universe and so on and so forth, it's all an illusion. It's all a matter of human misperception. Really, a bottom reality is made of, you know, whatever you pick, one wave function or, or mathematical structure. You remember uh, Max Tegmark, um, one of our guests, who, who thinks uh, that the universe mm-hmm. is inherently mathematical. I mean, literally is made of math, whatever that means. I mean, I, I can't make actually sense of, of that of that phrase, but hey, there are smart people out there who, who actually take it very seriously and write entire books about it. Um, I don't know. What's, what's your take on the you know, so, meriological nihilist, for instance? You know, the, the, what, does that, what does that conjure up in your mind? Well, I guess I'm just confused why it's useful to point out that the, the concepts that we have at a uh, like higher order of description are at a higher order of description. Like, if you, wh- why does it seem meaningful or significant to people to say that you know if you arrange four apples in a row, well, the row doesn't really exist because it's just made up of apples. Right. 
Um, and of course, you could, you know, zoom down further and say the apples don't really exist because they're made up of atoms and so on and so forth. Right. But, you know, the concepts of row and apple are still useful at the level of abstraction that we as humans uh, exist at. So right. I guess I just don't understand why this is a, like, important or meaningful argument. Well, so, so yeah, I can see the... I can see the objection, but let's try to um, distinguish between two different versions of the objection, one of which I think easily falls prey to your to your argument. The other one, a little, it's a little more complicated. So let's use your, your, your own example of the four apples that make a row of apples. I think mm-hmm. everybody would agree that to describe that situation in terms of a row of apples in no way implies, even at that level of description, that there is such a thing as the row independently of the apples. Uh, right. It's just a convenient way of arranging things, right? It's like, you know, we, we describe them and, and, okay, so so more or less these things are in a row, so we'll, we'll, we'll use a, a geometric metaphor basically to describe what's, what we're seeing. Right, but and it com- does feel natural and automatic, right? Our brains, it does. It especially does. visually, we're designed to see groupings of things, edges and planes and so on, because right. that's what helps us function in the 3D world. Right. But I think that it would be readily uncontroversial to say to somebody, even without you know, much training in either philosophy or physics, that really, there is no row. The row is, is an arbitrary thing. It's just, just the four apples that are arranged in a certain <laughs> no, way. I, I realize right? it sounds like I'm kicking a straw man. I just don't know where the real man is. Right. No, no. I'm, well, that's what I'm trying to get. So, so now, move instead from the, from the row of apples to a single apple. Now, if you say, well, the apple is made, it, it, there's really no such thing as apple. It's just a bunch of quarks, right? Right. Now, you know, at some level, you're, you're correct. But at some level, it seems like you're missing something. You're missing something more than what you were missing when you were talking about the row of apples. Because it seems like there, is a level of, there are different levels of description of the apple as an object, all of which in some sense, are in fact real. Uh, you know, it's true the apple is made of quarks. If you go all the way down to, or almost all the way down, I mean, Max Tegmark would say that it's actually made of mathematical objects, whatever. Um, but you can also meaningfully zoom back up and say, actually, no, it's, it's made of cells. And it is made of cells. Of course, the cells themselves are made of quarks and so on and so forth. But the cells are actually, in some interesting sense, I think, real, meaning that they're not random assemblages of quarks. They are quarks that are assembled in a very particular way, functionally, structurally, uh, to actually function in a way at that level of description that helps the apple function as, as a fruit, which is an even higher level of description, right? The, the whole here is, is the fruit, which does have a biological function. That biological function couldn't possibly be achieved by any combination of quarks or cells. It is achieved by only by a very specific kind of combination of quarks and cells, which means that we have a pretty good reason to think that to talk about apples as real um, as opposed to just assemblages of, of quarks actually does add meaningful structural information. In other words, it's, it's in fact real. It's not an illusion. The apple is not an illusion. The line of apples is an illusion, on the other hand. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I, I, that I got, got the point across well, but you, know, you, you let me know. What, what do you think? Does that help at all? I, I'm uncertain, but I think that our intuitions about what is real or what is not real 
are they're generated by some algorithm in our brain, um, which just like trying to evaluate whether something is a game or is not a game, um, there aren't any clear cut lines. It's just sort of a cluster concept. And there are certain properties that make something more likely to qualify as a game to our intuition or not. Um, like yeah. whether there's a goal or there's competition or it feels playful, et cetera. Right. Um, and similarly, so you read, to determine you read Wittgenstein recently. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a useful concept, yeah, the cluster is. concept. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, the line of apples doesn't really fully satisfy the realness criteria yeah. intuitively because um, it's not solid. It is easily broken up or divided conceptually in different ways. Um, there's nothing really that that row is doing in That's the right. world, we've just sort of defined it um, in, in contrast to the cells and quarks that you talked about, right. or cells and apples, I suppose. But to take a grayer case, a city, you know, mm-hmm. a city could be defined in different ways. Its, its boundaries are sort of, you know, fuzzy. Yep. Um, there's the question of whether you include the people or, you know, the institutions of the city, or is it just the physical uh, material that makes up the city and so on? Sure. Um, and it just sort of, you know, depends on how we're using the word or the concept city, for what purpose in that context? Well, that's an, so, that's all, those are all interesting examples. But notice what you've done there. I think you, you brought up three different um, examples, like the, the apple, the city, and the concept of game. And here's my, my first reaction looking over those, those concepts. Okay, so games are an entirely arbitrary human concept. There's, there's just, it's, it's an idea. Uh, that reflects, you know, it's our description of certain kinds of activities that we make up anyway. Um, cities are an interesting combination of arbitrary distinctions. I mean, you know, where does a city end and a suburb begins? Well, that's an arbitrary sort of, you know, demographic or political decision. But cities themselves are, in fact, artifacts made of a certain number of components, all of which, in fact, have functions. I mean, they're, 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 the reason there are buildings in cities is because people have to live and work in there. The reason there are, there are streets is because cars have to go through. The reasons there are uh, you know, sidewalks is because people have to walk and so on and so forth, right? So some of those descriptions are not arbitrary, meaning that once you con- conceive of a physical object such as a city, a lot of what's going on inside it, it's, it's, not, it's not the result of arbitrary decision. It's the result of functionality. The case of the apple, uh, it's entirely functionality. It's entirely a natural object. It, human, the human mind doesn't enter into it. I mean, obviously, that enters into it in the sense that we have a concept of, of apple. But apples are out there, regardless of whether they were human minds or not. I mean, again, unless you are actually <laughs> ontological nihilist, you would have to agree that you know apples are apples, period. And they're apples that, that and they're the result of of evolutionary processes. They serve a function that has absolutely nothing to do with human, human thought and human, uh, human uh, function, uh, human, human uh, preferences, except for cultivated apples, naturally. <laughs> but we're talking about you know, natural apples. So what, you, what, what those three examples show, I think, it's a, it's a gradation, it's a sliding scale from concepts yeah. that are entirely human and entirely arbitrary to, on the other hand, concepts that are are humans because all concepts are human but they reflect actually a natural object that has otherwise very little to do with human activity oh yeah i think that's what i was trying to say that Mm -hmm. there is a sliding scale but the the question of you know where on the scale will register is real is a little arbitrary um and i don't know i guess philosophical analysis can help us figure out what the dimensions of the spectrum of the scale are 
but not where to draw the line. And that's just sort of, yeah. you know, a question yeah, about human agree. psychology or language or, you know, the way the brain handles concepts. I would agree. I would agree. But, but I guess that what I, was, what I started out when I was talking about the different levels of description of the, of the, the apple was the idea that those levels of description are not arbitrary and it is, it's not at all a given that the most fundamental level of description, you know, the quirks, uh, is in fact, in some sense, the real one or the, the, the meaningful one or the one that really matters. And the reason for that is because if you zoom all the way down to the quantum level, let's say, you're actually missing a lot of stuff that goes on in an apple. Uh, you, you, there is no room and that, that seems to be Therefore, a deficit of that kind of description, a deficiency of that kind of description. I mean, you're missing, you don't know anything about the function of that thing. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know why it's shaped that way. You have, there is no notion of natural selection. There's no notion of biology at all. So it seems like when you're going to that more fundamental level, that means some people are inclined to say it's the real level of description, you're actually missing a lot of stuff, which tells me, at least, that no, it's not a privileged or it shouldn't be a privileged level of description. It's just one among many, depending on what it is that you want to do. The, are, is the question, what are the fundamental constituents of matter? Then, yes, at that level, at that, if that's the question, the answer there is quarks. But if you're asking, you know, why is an apple shaped the way it is, then quantum mechanics simply doesn't help. It's missing a lot of the stuff, the relevant information. Can't tell if we disagree. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless. Regardless. Um, I had another idea I wanted to run by sure. you, um, backing up a little bit to uh, why we react to Neela's philosophy the way that we do. Um, so, you know, there's a fair amount of psychological research showing that when we evaluate an act of charity, we don't judge it based on the absolute amount of good that it would accomplish, like the absolute number of lives. Yeah. We judge it based on the amount of good it would accomplish relative to the size of the problem. So, for example, ah. um, one study found that people cared more and were willing to donate more money to save 4,500 refugees if they were told that that was 4,500 out of a camp of 11,000 refugees as opposed to 4,500 out of a camp of 250,000 refugees. Uh-huh. Um, in both cases, the same number of lives were at stake. Right. But in the latter case, saving those lives just seemed less worthwhile or meaningful because right. they just seemed like a drop in the ocean, yeah. so to speak. Um, in fact, this effect even holds up uh, in a more extreme way in which people will save fewer lives if those lives are out of a smaller denominator um, as opposed to saving more lives out of a bigger denominator. So we're sort of focused on the ratio, uh-huh. which is a little depressing. Yes, it um, is. <laughs> but the reason that I bring this up is that uh, I think that the discovery of just how enormous the universe really is, is a big part of our, of many people's sensation that life lacks meaning. Yeah. You know, right. so whatever the stakes of our petty human lives and our human conflicts, even if millions of lives or uh, you know, millions of people suffering is at stake, you divide that by the size of the universe. And, you know, to our brains, it just seems to lack all meaning or purpose yeah. at that point. Um, but I think yeah. that's just a feature of our brains. You know, well, sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. It's, it is a feature of our brain. But but uh, so uh, my comment on that is going to be actually going back to uh, what you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is uh, literature, actually. Um, so if you look at uh, nihilism in literature, um, you find a couple of patterns, I think. Well, probably more, but, but my limited understanding of comparative literature uh, brings up about two patterns. So one of them is... 
perhaps the the, the um, uh, one one of the examples is is uh, Chekhov's um, uh, Three Sisters. That's a situation where the characters in in the book have um, really pretty bad experience. I mean, they they really have a life that it's not you know there's not much to brag about, and and they're overwhelmed by by events. And so one of the recurring phrases by utter, uttered by these characters is "What does it matter?" which they seem to be using as a way to console themselves. It's like, okay, well, this is a big mm-hmm. deal to me, but really in the big scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Um, and so it's a, it's, you can deploy um, uh, nihilism as essentially a way, uh, somewhat counterintuitively, I would, th- I would say, as a way to console yourself, to help yourself through a hard time because you say, well, in the big scheme of things, it, it really is not a big deal. I mean, it matters to me right now, but that's just because I have a distorted view of reality yeah so the other the opposite in some sense sort of uh uh, portrayal of nihilism in 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 literature it's it's in fact i think much more common and i'm going to give you two examples in the um from from uh, graphic graphic novels and comic books uh one is uh the joker in you know batman's arch enemy and the other one is the comedian in the series of the in the watchman book both of is those. it a coincidence that both of them are yeah, really. in the business, <laughs> sort of ironically in the business of humor? Right. Um, it's pretty heavy humor, however. It's pretty, pretty sarcastic humor, right? Now, right. both the Joker and the comedian, although differently from each other, they, they sort of take the position that nothing matters. Therefore, I can do whatever the heck I want. Uh, the, the, the Joker uh, seems bent on destruction for destruction's sake. He's not actually, he's not a criminal that goes after money, uh, power, or anything. He, he very clearly, in a number of the Batman stories, says that he's just there to create chaos. Um, he just, because he's, he's amused by this idea that people think that there is a meaning in all this stuff, that, that people think that it's a normal, that the normal way in which they conduct their life actually is meaningful and reasonable and all that sort of stuff. And he thinks it's all a joke. Um, and and it wants to bring sort of people you know back to reality from that perspective. The comedian does it in a more subtle way, I suppose. He's not. He doesn't go go quite out uh, as as explicitly as the Joker. Uh, but the comedian is a political nihilist and he's a moral nihilist. I mean, he kills people just to make a point, um, and that it can be done and there is no consequences. There is no you know there is no no known no arbitrary consequences. That it matter. It doesn't matter as long as you're not. Uh, getting cut by by somebody, um, those are the kinds of nihilism that, of course, are the most destructive. And and so, if you compare those with the Chekhov situation, you get really the the two extremes: nihilism on the one hand as a consolation, and nihilism as a license to do whatever the hell you want because nothing matters. Both of them argue that the reason for what they're doing or for the attitude is because nothing matters, because it doesn't really matter. Right. And I tend to reject, of course, of course both, I and mean, you know, try to sort of find a, somewhere in the middle where, well, it doesn't. Things don't matter in a universal perspective. That's true. Uh, you know what we do today to our friends and family and and so on doesn't really matter to the universe at large, or even to the local, you know, to the galaxy at large. It doesn't you have to go to the universe or to the rest of the solar system? But it matters to us. It matters to the people we affect. Uh, it does make a difference in their in their in their lives um, in a way that um, that to me is more than sufficient so so to give uh, enough meaning and to steer me away from uh, moral nihilism in that sense yeah yeah the way that I 
got past that point of, you know, comparing our human stakes to the entire universe was just to realize that the choice of denominator is pretty arbitrary. You know, even in the examples of the refugee camps of 11,000 or 250,000, um, yes, on first pass, it seems like, you know, saving 4,500 out of the first smaller camp is more meaningful. But why do you have to define it out of that camp? Why not right. define it out of all refugees in general? Or how about all human suffering? You know, there's no reason to limit yourself to that particular denominator. So yes, the, once I've gotten myself to the point where the denominator feels arbitrary, yeah. then I can just pick whichever denominator allows me to, you know, continue on sensibly with my life. Yeah. No, I, I would um, agree. The denominator doesn't matter in that case. That's right. Because it is, uh, in fact, also, you can say that because it's arbitrary, as you just pointed out. Right. Yeah. Uh, you also just made me realize something interesting, Massimo, about the connection between uh, humor and existential horror <laughs> by bringing up the Joker and the comedian, both of which uh, were sort of nihilists and also had this very dark sense of humor about their mm -hmm. personas. So what's the root of humor? Ah. Arguably, one root of humor is disorder or chaos. So like the, the standard, like fundamental joke that a little kid might make who's just learning to understand humor would be to take his shoe and put it on his head. And then he laughs and like right. expects his parents to laugh, right? Because shoes don't go on your head. That makes no sense. That's like messing up the natural order of things. And existential horror is about realizing that there isn't any natural order of things or purpose or meaning or logic to why things happen the way they do. So those are kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Yep. <laughs> Maybe we should do a separate episode on the roots of humor. There's a lot of stuff there. There's yeah, a lot of actually, philosophy it's a great and, idea. Uh, I'm yeah, putting that on science. my list. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we're out of time, if did you have any other no, things was, you yeah. wanted to shoehorn in? I think okay. we're pretty much out of Good. time. Good. Well, then so. I will just close with my favorite example of uh, perspective being distorted in literature by considering the size of the universe. Um, one of my very favorite works of fiction is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes. And as you may recall, Mesmo, uh, there's a point in the story when a character invents something which he calls the total perspective vortex. <laughs> it's this fiendish contraption, which when you step inside it and someone turns it on, it displays to you the entirety of existence. And the shock of seeing how infinitely tiny you are in comparison to the universe immediately annihilates your brain. <laughs> and the takeaway from this subplot is via Douglas Adams. If life is going to exist in a universe of this size, then the one thing it cannot afford to have is a sense of proportion. That's right. <laughs> of course, the same... <laughs> On that note. That's right. It is a great note. Uh, but if I recall correctly, the same um, result of annihilating your, you know, destroying your, your brain can be also achieved by uh, drinking a pangalactic gargle blaster. Gargle blaster, yeah. yes. <laughs> Which sounds more Multiple pleasant. Paths. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're out of time. So let's rack up wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is from the Boston Review. They have this feature called Forum. Um, it's a really great format for exploring complex ideas. So basically one scholar opens the debate and then about a dozen others respond to him and to each other. So this 
uh, episode of Forum is called Against Empathy. Huh. And it's kicked off by Paul Bloom, um, who is a cognitive psychologist who's written some really insightful stuff about empathy and magical thinking and essentialism. Um, so he, he kicks his contribution off by saying that when people ask what he's working on, he says he's writing a book about empathy and people tend to smile and nod. Right. And then he adds, I'm against it, <laughs> which usually gets an uncomfortable laugh. So he explains what he finds concerning about empathy, um, the ways in which it can actually inhibit uh, charity and working societies and so on. Um, I, I basically agree with Paul Bloom. Um, and several of the responses, like Peter Singer and Jesse Prince, also basically agree with Paul Bloom. But there are some dissenting voices in there as well, so it's interesting to read the back and forth. Yeah. Uh, Boston Review against empathy. We'll link it. Sounds good. And, of course, both Jesse and uh, Peter have been our guests before. So That's right. Um, okay, my pick um, is Stoic Week. Uh, Stoic Week 2014 is about to start at the moment in which we're taping this. I don't know when we're actually going to be published. Uh, it's the last week of November. Uh, if you miss it this year, don't worry. There'll be another one next year. And um, it's, it's an interesting event, which is organized by the University of Exeter in, in England. Um, there is a, a group that you can find out about it at um, Stoicism, Stoicism Today, which is the blog of, the, of this organization. And um, it's an interesting activity because, of course, it, it's, it's run by philosophers and social scientists who are interested in Stoicism as a practical philosophy. Uh, we're probably going to end up doing a show on that one as well because I got it very interested in, in, in myself. In fact, I'm practicing now for Stoic Week. And yeah, so so Stoicism, of course, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it has a long history, and it goes back to the Hellenistic Greece and uh, and uh, the Roman Empire. But um, for the purposes of this particular event, Stoicism is also at the roots or the inspiration of uh, different types of psychotherapy that actually seem to work on an evidence-based um, sort of uh, approach uh, in modern times, like. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy and logotherapy and things like that. Those are both, in fact, um, um, there's another background <laughs> police run. So I'm going to stop for a second. Gives us texture. Yeah, that's right. Um, anyway, so, so um, there's an interesting connection between stoic practice, essentially, and uh, the kind of, of um, practical advice and practical tools that are used by things like cognitive behavioral therapy. So the Stoic Week is about um, uh, you, can, you can sign up to, on their website and uh, you can download a short manual uh, which is called you know, How to Live Like a Stoic and you'll do that for a week and so what that means is you, you, you will practice a certain number of things, uh, uh, um, like an early, medita an early day meditation, beginning of the day meditation. Uh, you will keep a journal, philosophical journal. Uh, you will do a number of, um, quote-unquote, spiritual exercises uh, that are inspired by, uh, by writings of the ancient Stoics. And then at the end of the week, you, uh, you answer a questionnaire, uh, and the the results of the quest the answers to the questionnaire are compared to a, a similar questionnaire that you uh, filled up at the beginning of the week, and then the data gets analyzed on a sort of on an ongoing basis. In fact, some of the results from the first few years of Stoic Week have been just published um, uh, a few weeks ago, and they're interesting. They, they do seem to show, just like in the case of cognitive behavioral therapy, that regular practice as a Stoic does actually improve your mood, it improves your optimism, it improves your sense of control of, over your life, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a fun experiment. 
Um, you can do it for just a week, or if it works for you, you can just keep going uh, with it. So my pick is Stoic Week 2014. Oh, I love it. Massimo, you should choose not to tell me, or maybe other people, whether you're continuing your experiment past the week, and I will try <laughs> to guess, based on changes in your behavior, if I can observe them, whether you're continuing to be a Stoic. Sounds like a deal. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>